the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. It's uh, the hour I look forward to every Tuesday where I get to be joined in studio by Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman. Hugh Hallman is the former mayor of Tempe, runner extraordinaire. His son, Lewis, is the uh, managing director of Insight Analytics. Hugh is also a teacher. He is a school and educa- uh, school founder, an education expert, and an attorney in town. He is also my running coach, and he dragged me into this 10K on Sunday, which I'll say I completed. He completed in great time with an average pace of under nine minutes a mile. Well done, Mr. Hallman. Well, you know, not bad for 70. <laughs> You're not 70. <laughs> You're not 70. It was good to see people outdoors exercising without masks and um, it was good to get out there and do it. Your wife, your uh, the fetching Mrs. Hallman, joined us as well. And she, oh, man, she kicked butt, too. You both did much better than I did. You did great. You finished. I finished. You had not been doing this uh, race for a very long time. And you, you've been out of the uh, of the effort. And you trained not enough. <laughs> and you were worried that you couldn't get it done. And the right answer was, if you can run three miles, you can run any distance you want to. And you proved it. Yeah. And you did great. I will also say, Seth, you did it better than I did. My time was infinite, having not run the race. <laughs> yeah, you're still they're still clocking on you. No, but during our we we train every Saturday or try to, and the audience should know how resolute Hugh is. You don't want him as a coach because um, because every time it was just a little cold or there was a threat of rain or I woke up a little late, he was having none of it, and he threatened to send. The jackals after me if I didn't show up and run with him. I think it was my wife that I was threatening to send after you. No, Seth, you did great, and I'm really pleased for you on your progress uh, because I suspect in very little time you'll be um, beating me quite severely, uh, and I'll be sad about that. uh, Let's do Peoria next month. I'm I'm in. Okay. All right. Let's just do one a month. Peoria is a lovely city. They got great people out there, and the the race course is really kind of nice. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do one a month. You got it. I'm in. I'm in. That's a 6K, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. No, no, no. no, no, I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. 10K. 10K. He's talking about a 6.2-mile run. Uh, That ain't ain't, uh, bacon. 602-508-0960. This is our anniversary show. Uh, you guys came in almost a year ago, but we started talking about this a year ago here. I was making the point earlier. I'll let you guys say anything you want, Bob, and anyone else who uh, wants to call in. We'll get to you in a moment as well. I was saying, you know, it's still amazing to me that Anthony Fauci has a job. Um, you look at what he said in January, in February, excuse me, February a year ago. This is not something to worry about. We don't have to alter our lives. Uh, the next month, he was telling us uh, masks could do more harm than good. Uh, two months after that, he was telling us it's impossible to have a vaccine within a year. And three months ago, he told us he misled us about herd immunity because he didn't think we could handle the actual truth because he was worried about polling on vaccines. He's an MD. And the thing I was saying was if he were your personal physician who misdiagnosed you at the outset, not something to worry about, 
who then gave you the wrong di- uh, the, 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 the wrong medicine, masks, whatever he was saying about masks, he clearly changed his mind on two different times, and then told you he lied to you, you would have fired him as your physician and you would have reported him to the Board of Medical Examiners. You, you left out the fact that he, he didn't apply the medicine that might be available because he didn't believe that it was going to get done. So he gave you a different uh, anecdote to... Uh, to what could have happened. Right. You know, Seth, to me, it's not really, you know, there's a laundry list of of errors and issues there. And to me, it's not so much the fact that he was wrong, because frankly, it was a very low information environment at the start of this. None of us had any idea what we were really in for, and none of us knew what to expect. So, you know, to my thinking, I can forgive the inaccuracies, but what I cannot forgive is the paternalism. I cannot forgive someone who's approach going into this is thinking that the American people are untrustworthy and unable to put their own safety and security in their own hands, and and they're just not able to be trusted in following any kind of health guideline. And so what has to then be done is this program of continuously lying and browbeating and guilting us so that we might move in a direction potentially that the government at the current time thinks is valuable, but then down the road may not be. Yeah, and that, let, me, let me let me say something about that real quick because I think you'll agree. I, I I'm 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 contradicting you, but I think you'll agree. You're right. We were in a low information environment, but the notion that we had to listen and follow what that scientist said when he was wrong again and again and again in the same month that people like Heather McDonald were writing turned out to be right, who said, let's be careful here. The common sense sane society asks itself, is this what we're supposed to do with a fatality rate that might reach 0.1% and is confined to the elderly and the obese? Uh, she was more right in March than I, Fauci was, and she's condemned, and he's the hero we have to listen I, to. I will say, though, in March, keep in mind we're dealing with at that time where the case fatality rates, and those were much lower. We didn't have any kind of testing rollout. We didn't have the same kind of identification. And so there were points in March where you could reasonably get case fatality rates of 10%. We, we honestly didn't know what way this was going to go. But, and here's, I think, the difference between the two of you that makes the difference. That is, you've got a scientist, in quotation marks, uh, Anthony Fauci, saying, I know the answers, or actually saying, I don't know the answers. So therefore, because I'm in this position, you must follow my dictates, or diktats if you prefer, notwithstanding that I don't know what the right information is. And those of us saying, this is a free society, provide information and allow people to make their decisions and their choices, uh, that's the end game here. And what you end up with instead is people saying, no, 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 follow the science and pretending that science is some monolithic objective position when even Mr. Fauci finally, and let's thank CNN for once, when John Berman asked him, what's the science behind not saying it's safe for people who have been vaccinated, who've received two doses to travel? And Anthony Fauci answers They want to get to the science, speaking of the CDC, they want to get to the science. They want to get data. And then when you don't have the data and you don't have the actual evidence, you've got to make a judgment call. So Anthony Fauci's point is, I, Anthony Fauci, get to dictate the answers, notwithstanding the fact that I don't have the evidence, I don't have the data, and I'm making it up. And that precisely is the problem. 
it is again it's this sense of paternalism that he he is the one that gets to sit in the big chair and figure out for the rest of us what should happen even in a low information environment if one was really interested in any kind of scientific process at the outset of this pandemic you would actually want as many different people trying as many different kinds of solutions and regimes to this as possible because then we can see a wide range of activity get a broader sense of what works quickly and optimize faster but by demanding a universal one-size-fits-all approach we robbed ourselves of that kind of sense-making apparatus and we end up with a virus that then has a set of hurdles to overcome and as you often have better said than i have lewis that it then fit itself to those hurdles and now we have four variants running around the world uh, the original, plus three major variants that are going on now. Lou, you know the numbers better than I do. I think I think the you've got the British version, yep, which cor- is B117. Correct. You've got- which is predicted to now be the leading variant in the United States here within a, in a week or so. That's accurate, yes. And that got created because the one-size-fits-all uh, solutions created an environment in which the virus was mutating and the successful version of the virus overcame the barriers that we had erected in a, the you've got to follow my lead, Anthony Fauci, glass v. glass, shut down all the schools kind of way. Exactly right. Um, but, you know, what's actually interesting is is the other two strains actually have other properties that that make them very, very interesting and that aren't being talked about. So, there, there are two others. There is a South African strain, B1351, and there's a Brazilian strain, which is called P1. Now, the South African strain is very interesting because it seems to have uh, an increased ability to move from us to rodents. Now, this is a big issue because all urbanized areas all over the world carry with them very large rodent populations, which means even if that we even if we do very well in sort of the human domain, unless there are analogous approaches to deal with the rodent populations in, in those areas that may contract the virus, we will have issues. Anthony Rat Fauci being able to dictate to all of the rats right. they must must uh, <laughs> must close themselves into their into But what their this holes. means then is we've got a whole nother subset of sources for this to boil out at any time. And so we will be needing booster shots for this in like in all likelihood in perpetuity this is going to be a condition that is just endemic to the human way of life now stay six feet away from a rat oh, wait three feet sorry i'm Seth one Lee's, meter one, one meter. meter we'll be right back taking your call six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero a lot more to say about this when we come back we will be right back Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh and Lewis Hallman are in studio guests every Tuesday, third hour, talking COVID and public policy and a little public and political philosophy as well. Happy to take your calls at 602-508-0960. Bob is in Phoenix. You're on with the Hallmans, Bob. Welcome. Hey, thank you for taking my call. And the Hallmans are great. I yes, know. they I've are. I've heard them before. Uh, real quickly, I'm trying to put the COVID thing in perspective. I'm pretty much in Dennis Prager's uh, camp. I uh, listened to him a year ago. Uh, the, the concern I have is that he he kind of made it sound, and I still agree with him, don't get me wrong, but uh, that like, hey, this is nothing more than the flu. They have 60,000 deaths a year, maybe 80. Well, we're up over, you know, 500,000, maybe six. Um, so that's a little out of whack. And the other thing is I have had COVID, 
and it was very mild, very mild. I've never had a cold so mild as this. The worst part was having to stay home for 10 days. Other people I know have been hospitalized. So it's kind of a unique situation. I don't know how to put it in perspective. I know when it came on, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump was, he was stuck. You know, he had to do something and he got Fauci and all that stuff. So, um, but I don't know how to put it in perspective now. I don't know. Before I turn it over to the Hallmans and you, Bob, a couple preliminary questions, if I might. Um, Sure. You had it. You said it was about a cold or less than. I know people who have said the same. Can I ask roughly what decade of life you're in? I'm 72 in a week. And (laughs) the other question, happy birthday early. Uh, The other you. You bet. The other question is your friends who had it hospitalized, roughly in the same age category or younger? Um, Some of them younger. Any of them overweight? Yes, very overweight. Okay. Um, Okay. Okay. Those are my preliminary questions. I turn you over to the Holmans. Thank you. You bet. Um, The big perspective is that we started this with uh, Seth because we both, Lewis and I, are both data geeks. Lewis is probably a much more skilled data geek now. He remembers how to do things that I think I once knew how to do, but I've long forgotten. And our analysis was to take a look closely at the real numbers and get a better sense of how this disease would progress, how deadly it would be, and how to understand that. So we have a unique new virus attacking humanity, and so the first cut is going to be that until there is some immunity built up within the system as a unique new thing, uh, it is highly likely to be more deadly in the first round. That is why Native Americans succumbed to horrendous diseases uh, when Anglos showed up here because they were carrying uh, uh, novel viruses and and bacteria that killed off a huge pr- proportion of the population. They were novel a, to the Native Americans, not novel, novel that's to right. the Caucasians. And, right. and, and Iberians, the, not Anglos, yeah, but sure. Yeah. So thank you, Lewis. And so uh, further, there's now evidence developed because of DNA testing with uh, ancient materials that show that the same thing happened when Central Asians went into Europe four or 5,000 years ago and killed off a huge proportion of the population, not with swords and steel, uh, but with diseases that were novel to that group of people. So this is a novel virus that infects us and has clearly got a genetic component to it that infects us differently. There are some people for whom the attack rate, meaning the ability of the virus to enter the body, is much more restricted. We don't understand that very well yet. And then there are those for whom it's easier to entry, and then, as Seth was pointing out, those for whom it's more deadly, not based on necessarily age, but a combination of age and health condition, obesity, uh, uh, pulmonary issues, meaning breathing problems, uh, heart problems, etc. So the comorbidities are what you're hearing about. And as you look at that data, it was pretty easy to tell early on who was at risk. People with comorbidities and then the elderly. And instead of, as we've been advocating, a, a, a solutions that are tailored to the different demographics, we end, ended up with a one-size-fits-all kind of approach and shut down schools, as an example, when it was pretty clear even early on that children were not a vector for spreading this disease. So I actually really like uh, the points that you just made there, Dad. Uh, and it sort of brings out two of them in my thinking that I'd like to add. The first of those is... Uh, in line with your argument about history and that disease is really an old enemy. And in some sense, the story of humanity really is 
the story of these pandemics crashing over us repeatedly uh, from the Aurelian plagues, you know, uh, of Roman times to the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, so I think that this this round of that process has been much more disruptive economically than most of them because we are so much more integrated with one another. Our societies are so interdependent in a way that they haven't been that those consequences of the pandemic, I think, have been very amplified, despite the fact that in historical terms, the lethality of this pandemic was very, very low comparatively. Um, that sort of dovetails into my second point, which is that we're still not really sure what the the total effect of this pandemic has been. Uh, the death data that you cited, um, five or 600K deaths for the U.S., Bob, yeah. uh, uh, is taken and collected using a 60-day uh, a standard, right? Where So explain that to Bob because he's not heard yeah, this. So, so effectively, if you die uh, 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 or if you have contracted COVID and then later die, you'll be counted as a COVID case. Now, early if in the pandemic- tested positive within 60 days of your death. Correct. So I was going to say in the, in the early parts of the pandemic, we didn't have that restraint, but very quickly we settled on a 60-day standard, which is in fact much higher than almost the any other standard the rest of the world uses. The UK, for instance, uses a 28-day standard. And that means that the UK's death rates over the same period are about half to two-thirds of our own just because they're not counting out those patients that died 29 days through 60 days after having tested positive for coronavirus. So, Bob, that may, are. Not, that may not be something you'd heard about, but the U.S. has the most extreme protocol for determining that somebody died of the most SARS, liberal, the the most liberal the SARS-CoV-2. If you've tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, the virus, not necessarily COVID-19, and then you died within 60 days, you're counted as COVID death. So the box on the death certificate must, under CDC and WHO protocols, say COVID-19, even if you, your attending physician would say, this person died of a heart attack, but we have to market COVID-19. So the U.S. ends up with this black eye for having this higher standard. We know the data difference because the U.K. was at a 60-day standard early on in the pandemic and changed to 28. And there were studies done to see what the differences in death rates were from that change alone. And they were significant. They were very, very large. And so here we've got it's it's now that the data has been so politicized. I'm not I'm not decrying or, or doubting that the numbers are higher than any of us would want to be and maybe higher than the flu. But we also know that the data have been politicized. Why? Because there is science. We should follow the science. But there is not a monolithic scientist of objectivity out there. It certainly ain't Anthony Fauci. And we end up with a politicized science. So we have science, political science, and now we have political science. And that last piece has has bent the data in a way that makes it very difficult to tease out at this late date exactly what's really happened. Hold that thought, both all three of you. Bob, uh, I'm going to let you respond or ask a follow-up if you want uh, with the Hallmans when we come right back. It was a great question and a great, great response and a great way to re reset the discussion because people do say, say, say boy, that number is a huge one. And look how, how we did compared to Europe. We're, 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 we're missing forests for trees here when we don't do the analysis that Hugh and Lewis just did. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Hugh and Lewis Hallman with us. 602-508-0960 is the number. Bob in Phoenix was uh, engaging in a dialogue with the Hallmans. Bob, I hope uh, Hugh and Lewis were, were responsive or somewhat and wanted to give you a chance to follow up or follow on. Uh, very responsive. I really appreciate you putting me on with those guys. They're very, I've listened to them before. They're very good. Two quick questions. Number one, um, do the hospitals benefit by having a COVID versus a non-COVID thing? I've heard that. And number two is, um, are we ever going to get to the point where you can't fly without a COVID positive te- or, you know what I mean? A COVID, uh, vaccine. You've been vaccinated, uh, kind of thing. Just curious. Uh, I certainly can. It's Hugh. I can touch on the COVID, non-COVID. Yes, in fact, the the Medicaid, Medicare, uh, and various acts that came along as part of this uh, pandemic provided a bump for hospitals uh, for the cost of running COVID patients. Uh, It's about a 20% bump. And what that ultimately, uh, in a fascinating way, caused was that hospitals went from testing people who were coming in with COVID symptoms to be uh, treated as COVID patients properly. They then wanted to see whether they were spread within their hospital because somebody came in without symptoms. They were asymptomatic, which in the early days could have been as many as 80% of the patients uh, coming into hospitals based on the data that was available. And so hospitals started testing everybody. So if you came in for hip surgery, but also tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, the virus, whether or not you had COVID symptoms, you're then a COVID patient. And then the hospital could get the bump for treating a COVID patient as well. So you had that incentive that is created as Lewis has invented the concept of the uh, health industrial complex uh, to take the warning from uh, President Eisenhower about the military industrial complex. Uh, The second question was about whether or not we're going to have COVID uh, proof of uh, vaccine in order to take on life. So the, I, I think that that question is probably best bifurcated between sort of domestic travel and international travel. Uh, frankly, with domestic travel, I very much doubt it. Um, we're set to see generalized uh, uh, vaccinations go out, I believe, pretty soon here at the end of the month, uh, with most projections showing that those should be through by May 31st. Um I don't think that it makes very much sense for that kind of re- regulatory regime to roll out, but where you will probably start to and see... And you run into a constitutional question of yes. whether or not the uh, federal government can impose uh, restrictions on individuals' freedom to travel. It, it will probably start to make sense, though, when we start to talk about international travel, uh, because most other places in the world don't have the same kind of vaccine rollout schedule that we do. We really are first in line here. Um we really are going to see the rest of the world continue to struggle with the COVID pandemic and its current iteration, really, probably until the end of 2022. And to make this even more political, uh, in order to come back into the country, one currently has to have a negative COVID test within three days of boarding the aircraft in order to get to fly back into the United States. And yet one can cross the border uh, without such a COVID test. Do we have any other kinds of analogs to something like that where you have to show proof other than on this kind of issue, other than on COVID. I can't think off the top of my head of something like that. Tuberculosis? Maybe? Yeah, maybe maybe we once had to do it with TB, maybe. Possibly, maybe. and smallpox, uh, but I can't. I do not know, yeah. honestly, whether or not there was a legal standard right. regarding those diseases. Yeah, but expect, uh, expect that argument. I mean, expect that argument. Yes, that's yeah, right. Absolutely. Should we go to... Please. Sonia, thanks, Bob. Hi, Sonia, and good year. Welcome. Hi. Um, you know, I have been trying to find excess deaths because to me that is what 
the real number might be for COVID deaths. Um, it's not very concise, and I haven't really been able to find what I, you know, would really call a good number, either on the CDC or even locally in Arizona. Have you guys looked at those excess deaths? I want to say maybe there's 300,000 uh, nationwide um, and not the 500,000 for COVID that they're saying. But then also there might be more, um, you know, depre- you know, deaths of depression like drug overdoses and suicides. You're um, exactly right, Sonia. Hold, hold that thought real quick, Sonia. We're going to go to a break. It's a big question. Let's answer that on the other side of it. And, Lewis, I'm going to ask you to start by defining what she means. By I know you know what she means, but All just right. for the audience that doesn't, what is meant by excess deaths. We'll pick that up on the other side of this break. We'll be right back. If I can't get you into 80s rock, Lewis, can I get you into 60s? Can I get you <laughs> into the Beach Boys? That can pet try. Sa- that Pet Sounds album was supposed to be just a marvel of um, of revolution in the music industry. You might like it. You might like it. Pet Sounds. Check it out. Sure. I, I, I will do so. Okay. Sonia from Goodyear called, and she was asking about excess deaths and everything about that. First, do you mind uh, talking about what ex- what she means by excess deaths and then Sure. So it. excess mortality is defined as the total number of excess deaths from all causes. And keep in mind that this is the critical point. It is from all causes over the period over which a pandemic is active. So we would have a baseline level of of death rate that we would expect to see under quote-unquote normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. We have a pandemic. We're now seeing a rate that is higher than that. Therefore, the difference between those two rates is our excess deaths. There are some real problems with this, this statistic, though. Sonia, you did ask where you can find it. I would recommend looking at our world in data. They have very good uh, uh, compilations of of most statistics pertaining to the COVID pandemic that you're going to get. But let me talk about this metric just so that I can give you some grains of salt to take while you're looking at that information. So the problem, again, is this excess deaths from all causes. Let's imagine a scenario where we have a pandemic and then we have, say, a massively counterproductive lockdown policy, for instance, that then causes depression and suicide and drug overdoses to spike. Now, we would then see on the margin a significant spike in deaths of despair from these issues as a consequence of our lockdown policy, not the pandemic itself. So could you then say that those deaths of depression and despair and the rest are attributable to coronavirus? Maybe. But are they attributable to our po- to our policies instead? That, to me, is the more uh, tempting answer. Salient point. Sa- exactly, yes. And so, uh, so that's, that's the first issue, is that it's deaths from all sources and that we're counting deaths that come as a direct consequence of our intervention. Not as a result of the disease, but as a result of the prescription to avoid it. Exactly. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that it is, in fact, just measuring deaths and that it treats all deaths as equal. Let me give you another hypothetical. Let's say that there are two different diseases running around. They kill the same number of people. Let's say they kill 10,000 people apiece. One of them only kills 80-year-olds, and the other kills 8-month-olds. Now, are these diseases the same? Is their net reduction of human life identical? I don't think so. It's much likelier to me that those infants would have lived longer fulfilling lives had the disease that we're hypothetically talking about not come through. So... 
I, I really like a more actuarial model of thinking about these kinds of things. Something like total years of life lost statistically is a much better, much more apples to apples sort of comparison for how deadly is a, is a given disease. Or so, a given force. so, for example, the flu that came through in 2009, H1N1 flu, it actually impacted younger people more severely than older people. Unlike this particular virus, it, it was uh, attacking younger people. And it was quite unusual. And the scientists studying it couldn't quite figure it out. And what it turns out, as occurred, is that the flu that came through our society in 1957 was a precursor to this and very genetically related so that old people had the immunity from the H1N1 at a higher rate than young people. So now we have a specific flu that was actually much more deadly for young people than it was for older people. What did we do about it? Nothing. Lewis's point is we lost a lot of young people who would have led productive lives. In this instance, we've, we've nearly destroyed the most productive uh, uh, economy in the history of humanity. If, if I may, though, I, I will say that the 2009 case had a significantly lower overall magnitude. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But there were still 125,000, approximately 125,000 deaths in the United States from the H1N1 flu in the 2009-10 era. Uh, that actually had to be adjusted upward in the last few years because folks finally looking at the data realized that the undercounting that had happened with that flu was significant. So if you then look at uh, how uh, how it impacted the population, in this instance, 75% of the deaths that have visited the United States are people 65 years and older. And so 25% is everybody down below that. And if you're 20 years and younger, it's minuscule. We shut down schools to save the lives of 75-year-olds, and we have consigned the children of our society to much worse trajectories imposed on them psychological damage, drug addiction, uh, alcoholism, suicide has doubled in this year. Suicide of young people has doubled in this society as a result of the measures we took, not as a result of the disease, Lewis's point. And drug overdoses among teens rose 95% this year over last, or 20 over 2019. Yeah, and here's a piece that uh, is particularly puzzling to me. Those who are counting excess deaths now as the means to say, see, this pandemic really is horrible, mm -hmm. setting aside Lewis's point that the, you're, you're counting in the deaths caused by the, the cures, it's fascinating to me that in the first three months or so of this pandemic, our mortality rate fell precipitously. And one of the standards that government was using to say whether or not we should reopen is that we've got to stop these deaths. At the time, it was about 1,500 in Arizona. We've got to get back to zero, save 1,500 lives. And I had to uh, explain to the governor, if you use that as a standard, you can never reopen because the number of people who did not dry and die in drunken driving accidents, slipping on floors in restaurants and other similar things exceeded the number of deaths at the time that had been caused by COVID-19. So we've got this conundrum where we're using this indirect measure that actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you start taking it apart. Final point. It's amazing to me that those who are now calculating excess deaths only count 
the weeks in which the number of deaths exceeded the predicted number, and they exclude the weeks in which the number of deaths were below the predicted number, so they end up with this false calculation of excess deaths. Wonderful point. Couldn't yeah. agree more. Great. Let us, uh, let's do a quick wrap-up when we come back. I'd love if you would do a wrap-up, Hugh, on what you were saying about science, political science, and political science. Would you uh, end on that note, please, with us when we come back? I appreciate that. I'll give you a minute to think about it. I'm Seth. They're the Hallmans. We'll be right back. Welcome back, and obviously, as always, thank you to Hugh and Lewis Holman for joining us as they do uh, every Tuesday in our third hour to uh, bring light uh, to the dark that uh, has been uh, veiled upon us. Uh, Lewis and Hugh, take us out. So I, I want to close on this tweet uh, uh, that was sent out about Fauci. Uh, Fauci was asked uh, what the science is for denying vaccinated Americans a return to travel and couldn't explain. He said, quote, when you don't have the data and you don't have the actual evidence, you've got to make a judgment call, unquote. And this is really what we are so ballistic about, because this is the reason why the pandemic has been so politicized, because he's just admitted they don't have the data and they don't have the evidence. So what has to happen now are value judgments. We need to decide what our values are and what we want to prioritize, and then we can allocate things. And to pick up on a theme from our host, the idea that we live in a society in which values don't matter. Right. They do. And now we've got the best example of that with the application of the claim that we need to, to listen to the scientists. Dr. Fauci made it clear. It is often the case that we don't have the data or evidence. And so now scientists are applying their value system from whatever value base they come from. And if they come from a value base that says that the greater good requires that individuals sacrifice themselves to the whole, you end up with the Soviet Union. The concepts that human beings don't matter as individuals, that all that matters is the body politic, and that no human being should rise above that in their own self-interest. And yet we belong to a society that was founded by people who understood that human beings as individuals matter and they should matter. And that is why we have a constitution that has a bill of rights tied to it that are individual rights that each of us has an opportunity to live by. And our living by it means we have to respect the right of every other individual in this society to do the same. And that is why we have been so angered that the idea that scientists are somehow objective and monolithic, they are not. And those people whose judgments are being applied to us have taken us way off course, and it needs to end. God bless you both. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson, class dismissed.